Hello guys, and welcome back to another episode of What Happened. This is True Crime Chronicles, and we're at episode number 21. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Diane Downs. Diane Downs was the mother of three from the 80s who shot all of her children by the side of the road, blaming it all on a bushy-haired stranger. Do we remember this case? Yes, we sure do. Stay with me while we revisit this case. Diane Downs. I vaguely remember this case from the 80s because I was only a little older than her youngest child at the time. Uh, But I certainly remember how I felt when I heard about this case, probably just a few years later, about this mother who was being charged with the attempted murder of her young children and the murder of one of them. Uh, She was accused of having shot her three children in the back of the car in the middle of the night, one night, in an attempt to kill them all and get away with it. Her motives were not complicated. Investigators believe that she did it to attain a relationship with a man that she was infatuated with, but who really didn't want her back and also did not want kids, any kids. So by extension, her kids, and so to Diane, they became disposable. Famous true crime writer Anne Rule wrote a book about this case called Small Sacrifices. It was later turned into a movie. Um, I read the book for the first time about 20 years ago, and I now own it. It's the best source of true material in this case that I've come across. So according to Diane, just to give you a real brief Reader's Digest version of the events before we get right into the crux of it all, One night on a lonely, dark backcountry road, late in the night, she and her three children, eight-year-old Christy, seven-year-old Cheryl, and three-year-old Danny, were out driving around on a back road in Oregon, near the community they lived. They encountered a stranger in the road, and after stopping her car, was allegedly assaulted by this strange man, who then shot her three children in the car, and then shot Diane in the arm. Diane then says that she distracted the assailant, got back into her car, and sped towards the closest hospital, the Mackenzie Willamette Hospital in Springfield, Oregon, with her three injured children. She arrived at the hospital at 10.48 p.m., where she tells the hospital staff that story. They end up calling police, who show up at the hospital. Diane then tells police the same story. This news story went what we would call today viral. It was all over the news. I mean, even here in Eastern Canada, I knew all about it. And I was only, like I said, a young child in the 80s. So this poor woman whose children were shot with one of them killed. But that certainly wasn't the entire story. And as the actual story came out, it was horrendous. Let's start at the beginning. Diane Downs. She was born Elizabeth Diane Frederick in 1955 in Phoenix, Arizona. Diane, as she became known to her friends and family, was born to parents Wesley and Willa Dean Fredrickson. By all accounts, her parents were strict conservatives who imposed a lot of rules on Diane, and when she reached her teenage years, she started to rebel. Um, There was... um, 
a scenario where she was expelled from a religious school that her parents enrolled her in, apparently because of promiscuous behavior. In 1973, at the age of 18, she married Stephen Downs, a boy she had known in high school. She later said of the marriage, quote, I did not marry Steve for love. I married Steve to get out of the family, end quote. Doesn't sound very promising. During their marriage, Diane and Steve had two daughters, Christy, born in 1974, and Cheryl, born in 1976. While still married to Steve, Diane had an affair with one of her male friends, Mark Sager, and had a third child, Daniel, or Danny, from that union. Diane and Steve divorced in 1980, no doubt in part due to Diane's affair and resulting child. After her divorce, Diane then chose to become a surrogate mother for a couple who wanted a baby, and she gave birth to a fourth child, a girl named Jennifer, in 1982, who was then raised by her surrogate family. It has been alleged that she had this pregnancy and child for the money it afforded her. Being a surrogate paid well. Apparently, Diane got $10,000 for the deal. Not bad in the 80s. According to her ex-husband and other people who knew her, Diane was not a good mother, denying her children attention, affection, and material things. She was constantly punishing and berating them all, but she was especially hard on Cheryl. For some reason, she had a particular dislike for her second child. Cheryl was a more needy and sickly baby and child, and Diane was completely turned off by this, and she became resentful. There are lots of stories um, I've heard in documentaries from different people who knew the family, of the children being neglected and left alone for hours, sometimes left outside of the their house after school for hours. So, during this time, Diane started working for the United States Postal Service after she had this fourth surrogate child. And it was there that she met a man that would change her life and the lives of all who knew her, especially her children. Also employed, employed sorry, at the United States Postal Service was a man named Robert Knickerbocker. Robert was married, but took an interest in Diane, and before long, the two were having a secret affair. Maybe not so secret, as it appears everyone that worked with them knew about it. Diane became obsessed with this man, more so than any man she had ever met. Something about him was exactly what Diane was looking for. One big problem though, besides being married, Robert did not want children, and he made that very clear to Diane. He was not interested in leaving his wife to take up with a woman who was saddled down with three small children. And after a while, her strange and obsessive behavior started driving a wedge between Diane and Robert, and he started distancing himself from her. His wife wound up fi finding out actually about the affair, and he promised to break it off with Diane and commit to their marriage if she would stay with him. Diane did not do well with the news. She became extremely upset and took to trying to call Robert repeatedly. She started harassing him at work and at home. She was completely infatuated. After a while, she even started harassing his wife, hoping that his wife would just leave him, and then, of course, Robert would be free for Diane. After a while of this, she could see that she was having no effect on Robert, 
and it seemed their relationship was over. But Diane could not let it go, and she was not over it. Eventually, in April of 1983, Diane was transferred to Oregon from Arizona with the United States Postal Service. Robert stated later on that he was really glad to get the news that Diane was leaving. She had been making his life hell. After she moved to Oregon, she continued to hound Robert and she sent him letters, uh, evidently, almost daily, which he did not open and he returned. This behavior continued right up to the night of the car shooting in May of 1983. So now, we are pretty much up to the night of the shooting. We've got kind of an idea of what is making Diane tick at this point, and it's certainly not her love for her children. Up to the night of the shooting here, and this is a course where Diane's story and the truth part ways. Here's Diane's version of the timeline of events on the night of the murder. Right after this, we'll talk about what we actually know happened on the night of the murder. So according to Diane, who was 27 years old on the night of the shooting, on the evening of May the 19th, 1983, she took her three kids in her red Nissan two-door car to a friend's house, Heather Plored, to talk about and see a horse that she had. Heather later told authorities that she was very surprised to see Diane and her three small children as it was an unplanned visit and Diane lived a little ways away. Also, it was getting dark, it was getting later in the evening and her youngest child was little more than a baby. Next, according to Diane, she left Heather's at around 10 o'clock after having a visit with her and proceeds to take some backcountry road back to her home that she wasn't familiar with and that she had never been on before. When she was asked about this by police, she stated that she liked to explore different roads and that even though it was late at night and her children were either asleep or certainly sleepy, she still decided to take this unknown road to nowhere. Police believe the entire night was a setup for an alibi for the pre-planned murder. Diane is in the driver's side of the car. Cheryl is by now asleep, curled up on the floor of the car, covered with a jacket on the passenger side of the car. Christy and Danny are both in the back seat, between sleep and awake. As she is driving down this road, which was named Old Mohawk Road, listening to music on her tape player, she sees a tall man standing in the middle of the road, who doesn't move as her car approaches. This forces her to stop her car. So when she stops her car, she opens the door and gets out. She starts asking him what is the matter. The man, whom she describes at the hospital and to police later on as being a tall, bushy-haired white man, is waving a gun at her and demands she give up her car to him. Again, according to Diane, and you should hear her tell this because I've heard her, like I've seen the interview that she, where she gives this information, she sounds so unemotion, like so emotionless. Anyways, according to Diane, she refuses to give the car up to him. He threatens to shoot her and her children if she doesn't. And again, she refuses. That's again. So just side note here. That's a little strange, right? If I was in the car with my child and someone said they were going to shoot me with if I did not give them my 
my car. As soon as I got my child out, that car's theirs, man. Anyway, she stops the car. So apparently, um, she says no to him after all of this. And he leans into the car window at this point and shoots all three of her children through the driver's side window. He then struggles with Diane outside the car and winds up shooting her, striking her in the forearm. She pretends to throw her keys into the bushes to distract the man. She actually keeps her keys, jumps back into her vehicle, and speeds hell or high water towards the closest hospital with her children. She actually told police that there were times she was in excess of 100 miles per hour in the panic-stricken mode that she was in. She arrives at the hospital at 10.48 p.m., and the rest is now known by police. When she arrives, she has something bandaged around her arm. Her children are rushed into surgery, and every attempt is made to save them. However, tragically, little Cheryl is reported dead upon arrival. The other two children are very close to death. The doctor who initially saw Christy said later that he thought she was already dead. Her vitals were nearly non-existent and he did not expect her to live through the night. So right from the get-go, police are suspicious of Diane and her story for a multitude of reasons, one of which is Diane's demeanor. Even though her children have all been shot, she isn't that upset. She isn't panicked, crying, nothing. She is animated, she is excited, but not upset. Even after she is told that her firstborn daughter, Christy, has to be rushed into surgery and will likely die, and that she had had a stroke, even after being told that Danny is paralyzed for life and may also die, and even after being told that her second daughter, Cheryl, has already died. She's concerned about the bullet wound in her arm, though. This wound placement and lack of severity is another suspicious box ticked for detectives though. Why is Diane only shot in the forearm, the least likely place to have any kind of, you know, sustained injury, yet her children were all mortally wounded and all shot repeatedly? She even laughs and jokes with detectives at different points during the night. I'm not joking. The police record all of this, and even though they issue a be on the lookout or a bolo for this bushy-haired stranger and give a press release, they aren't convinced that any of that ever happened and are focusing their attention on their number one suspect at this point, which is Diane and her behavior. Another thing of note to add here, because it happens at the hospital during the next few days as Christy is fighting for her life between surgeries Every time her mother enters her hospital room, Christy's blood pressure and heart rate increase dramatically, even though she isn't even conscious. Nurses notice this strange phenomenon after it happens repeatedly, and they record it. It's even later brought up in court. The drive from the scene of the shooting to the hospital was six miles. A drive Diane could easily have made in 10 minutes, but it actually took her about 30 minutes to get there. And it was reported that she was traveling about 10 miles per hour by the family and other witnesses behind her. 
Witnesses who saw a red Nissan two-door car with red Arizona plates. Now we are up to the time that Diane arrives at the hospital. And here is the actual timeline of events from when Diane arrived at the hospital. Things we know for sure happened. She pulls up to the emergency entrance of the hospital at 10.48 p.m. and yells out to the hospital staff in a panic to run out and get her children who had been shot in the car. Medical personnel rush the children into the hospital. It is noticed during this time that Diane has a wound on her arm that is wrapped up. Christy had also been shot twice in the chest and shortly after arriving at the hospital, also suffered a stroke from her injuries, as I mentioned earlier, and she was not expected to live. Danny had been shot in the spine and was paralyzed from the chest down and clinging to life. Cheryl had been shot twice, once in the heart and once in a lung. The children had all been shot by a 22 caliber pistol. Diane had been shot too, in the left forearm, which she had time to properly wrap before coming to the hospital. It was determined later by detectives that the bandage had been pre-wrapped in the trunk for when she shot herself. The doctor who treated the children that night also was pretty suspicious of their mother's behavior. He was quoted as saying, quote, not one tear, you know, she just asked, how is she doing? Not one emotional reaction. He said, she says things to me like, boy, this has really spoiled my vacation. And she also says, that really ruined my new car. I got blood all over the back of it. I knew within 30 minutes of talking with that woman that she was guilty, end quote. But then Dr. Willite said something even more shocking. He says that at one point, Diane told him that she knew Christy was brain dead and that if that was the case, she wanted him to pull the plug. She's also quoted in the month or so after the shooting in an interview when describing how the assailant shot her only in the arm. She says, quote, Everybody says, you sure were lucky. Well, I don't feel very lucky. I couldn't tie my damn shoes for about two months. As she's laughing at this point, she goes on to say, It is very painful. It is still painful. I have a steel plate in my arm, and I will for a year and a half. The scar is going to be there forever. I'm going to remember that night for the rest of my life, whether I want to or not. I don't think I was very lucky. I think my kids were lucky. If I had been shot the way they were, we all would have died, except maybe Danny. Here's a snippet of that conversation. Everybody says you sure were lucky. Well, I don't feel very lucky. I couldn't tie my damn shoes for about two months. It is very painful. It is still painful. I have a steel plate on my arm. I will for a year and a half. The, the scar is going to be there forever. I'm going to remember that night for the rest of my life, whether I want to or not. I don't think I was very lucky. I think my kids were lucky. If I had been shot the way they were, we all would have died. Except what? maybe Danny. What? Wow. Yep. That's what was said. How monotone she sounds. And she has a pre-existing explanation for everything. During the investigation... A witness came forward and contacted authorities 
to report that he and his family had been driving on Old Mohawk Road that night at the same time as Diane. Right behind Diane, they were driving right behind a red Nissan with red Arizona plates at the exact same time as Diane. But this car ahead of them was not speeding as fast as it could to the hospital. The reason this witness remembers driving behind this car on that night was because of how that car was driving. They discussed it in their own car amongst themselves. According to the witnesses, and there was more than one car that saw this, this car was driving way below the speed limit and moving extremely slowly up the road. The car continued on this way, traveling at about five to 10 miles per hour at that rate of speed or lack thereof for at least 20 minutes. So now we've got Diane's weird bushy haired stranger story, her injuries, which were inconsistent and much less severe than her children's, no other witnesses that saw any stranger that night, no other murders or carjackings after this or before it, the odd hour Diane chose to visit a friend unplanned, the path she chose to go home by, her inconsistent stories to police, her slow driving, her easy um, way she explained everything happening, um, her dying children in the back seat as she's very slowly driving to the hospital. That really gets me. Her strange behavior at the hospital, her lack of any kind of emotion towards her dead and dying children, some of the comments she made, the fact that she bandaged and compressed her own injuries, but didn't do any kind of first aid to either of her children. The married man she is obsessed with who didn't want children. Things are starting to paint a very disturbing, almost unbelievable story. Police at the hospital ask Diane to accompany them as soon as possible back to the scene of the crime to show them exactly where it was and exactly what happened while the evidence is still fresh and everything is fresh in Diane's mind. She complies, but doesn't do anything to make herself look any better. During the visit to the side of Old Mohawk Road and the reenactment of the crime, Diane is joking, making inappropriate comments, and showing no signs at all of distress, fear, or any other emotion. And although Christy and Danny are questioned by police when they are medically able to withstand that, unfortunately, initially they don't have any information or memories to share about who did it. But the forensic evidence also does not match Diane's story. There's no blood spatter on the driver's side of the car, nor was there any gunpowder residue on the driver's door or on the interior of the door panel, which is where investigators say there would be if someone leaned into the car and shot the children. There was, however, blood spatter found on the exterior of the passenger side door. Let me say that again. The exterior of the passenger side door indicating that Cheryl, who was sitting in the passenger side, had been shot while she was outside the car and someone was in the car leaning through it and then she was put back in the car. The police believe that after being shot the first time, Cheryl either attempted to flee the car 
or fell out of the car and was shot a second fatal time then, and then placed back into the car. The children were all shot at point-blank range. Over the next weeks and months, Christy and Danny slowly recover physically to the best of their ability, but much less psychologically. Lucky that either one of them lived through being shot by their mother at close you know, range by a gun. When Christy is finally able to speak, she tells the story of what she can remember about being in the car that night. It's very chilling and it's really hard to listen to. Christy told police that she remembers driving down the road with her mom and her sister and brother and music being on really loud. She said that she remembered the song that was playing was Hungry Like the Wolf by Duran Duran, her mom's favorite tape, when the car stopped and her mom got out. According to Christy, she thinks she remembers the music continuing through the entire event. The next thing she knew, she and her siblings were all being shot and killed. She did not see a bushy-haired stranger from her view in the back seat. She says Cheryl was shot first, and then Danny was shot, and then she was shot last. For a long time, Christy could not or would not say by whom. After a long period of therapy and finally gaining some trust in her therapist, Christy eventually admits to him that it was indeed her mother who shot them all. As a matter of fact, heartbreakingly, Christy and her therapist devise a coping mechanism where at every session, Christy would write the name of the person who shot her on a piece of paper and then throw it out so no one would see it before she left the room at the end of the session. At the end of one session, she didn't throw it out. She purposely left the note on the table for the therapist to find. The words on the paper said, my mom. In court, Christy's testimony helped convict her mother who had tried so hard to kill her. Diane was arrested for the first degree murder of Cheryl and the attempted murders of her other children nine months after the shooting. And guess what? She was pregnant again. She had gotten pregnant by a reporter on the case, apparently, allegedly. And the trial for Diane Downs started in May 1984. It lasted about six weeks. During the emotionally charged trial, where Robert Knickerbocker testified and little Christy Downs testified, another incredible thing occurred. The trial at one point played the song, which was entered into evidence, Hungry Like the Wolf by Duran Duran, a first and last for me, I've never seen that at a trial before or since, and most shocking of all, it was widely reported that Diane began to dance in her seat and sing along with the words of the song, air drumming at some points in court to the song that her children had been shot and killed to. In front of the jury, in front of the judge, I, I have no words for something like that. So, on June the 17th in 1984, after a six-week trial, the jury returned a verdict of guilty on all charges, and a very pregnant Diane Downs was sentenced to life in prison plus 50 years. 
she was sent to the Valley State Prison for Women, where she still remains today. When she gave birth, her fifth child was taken away from her. Side note, at one point during her incarceration, Diane managed to briefly escape jail, during which time she hid out with a group of people where she attempted again to get pregnant by one of the men. She was apprehended and returned to jail again, not pregnant. Diane's two surviving children, Christy and Danny, they had a bit of a happier ending. Danny stayed paralyzed and Christy always had problems with speech, but they eventually went on to live with the lead prosecutor on the case, Fred Yugi. Yugi and the Downs children had developed a strong bond during the aftermath of the shooting, and he felt compelled to do more for the children. And he and his wife Joanne adopted them in 1986. They became parents to Christy and Danny. Christy Downs still suffers from speech disability, as I said. She went on to have a son and a daughter whom she named Cheryl in memory of her late sister. Well, guys, in the case of murdering mom, Diane Downs, that's what happened. Thanks again for joining me, and I hope I will catch you next time on the next episode. Until next crime, this is what happened, brought to you by True Crime Chronicles.